0: Well, oh my goodness me, it's the intro to the intro. It's the part of Alexa Stop where we tell you what's coming up in today's episode. And here with me is, of course, my co-host, my friend, my confidant, Mr. Robert Belgrave.
1: Hello, it's intro time. It's been too long and it's, you know, it's nice to be back, Jim.
0: Isn't it? It's really good to be back. Look, we're doing this for the first time ever from home studios that we've set up over the weekend because there is a global pandemic. Coronavirus is happening, causing COVID 19 to happen in people all over the world. It's a tough time, but we want to bring a little bit of optimism, and that's what we've aimed to do today.
1: Yes, indeed, a bit of positivity. And so, over the coming few weeks and months, we're going to be recording interviews with people who are doing something good in the world. We're going to try and bring you a positive slant. We may even venture a little bit further away from our usual very tech focused themes as we try and explore. What are people up to to make the world a better place? And, and and how are they contributing through their personal lives, their missions and their businesses? So Jim, really excited to be back. As always, thank you everybody for listening to Alexa Stop. We're brought to you in partnership with Disruption Magazine, which you can find on disruptionhub.com. Uh, you can contact myself and Jim on Twitter using Alexa underscore stop. And we'd love to hear from you if you've got any questions you'd like on a, on a future episode.
0: On this episode we've got Elliot Code from Offset Earth. We've got the usual news. We've got stories from Rob CTO and a little bit of dad tech from me. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Alexa, Alexa. Stop. 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 A podcast about how technology is changing our lives. With Robert Bailgrave, and Jim Bows.
0: Well, my goodness me, I'm in Bristol, you're in London, we've been away since Christmas, and well, not much has really changed in the world, has it? I'm Jim Bowes, and you are, of course,
1: Robert Belgrave. Not much has changed at all, Jim, other than, well, our dear friend Corona.
0: And not only that, I suppose the first time that we've ever moved into doing remote versions of Alexa Stop. We normally do this face to face together in a single room. We maybe even shake hands or hug at times
1: in that. We do, and and what's funny about this is that you've decided to stand up for this recording. So, despite the fact we have a video call as well as our online podcast recording software, all I can actually see is your crotch and torso. Uh, oh, there we go. You've adjusted your camera. That's p- better. Pushed
0: the screen up. But I thought, you know, I've got my owl uh, um, sweatshirt on. I thought you'd appreciate just a really good shot of that.
1: The owl sweatshirt is looking looking lovely, as is your lampshade that I can now see, having uh, having the sort of up-nose camera angle. But, look, joking apart, we always swore we would never do a podcast recording remotely, but times are what they are. Needs must. So here we are doing a online recording.
0: And, of course, we're doing this because I've moved to Bristol,
1: right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's also part of it. Although I'm sure we'd have obeyed the uh, social distancing guidelines and not met up in person. Although, is podcast recording key work? I suppose arguably it is.
0: My thing was maybe I could have invited you and Laura to live in my house so that we could just record together. Then you'd all be part of my household. We could exercise together.
1: it would all be fine. Be great. Yeah. Bit of a dance class in the morning. Some family cooking would have been good fun. Anyway, it's good to be back. It's good to be back with the first of our Corona specials, I guess. Right. What, what are we going to do over the next few months?
0: Well, I think what we're going to do is try and give a slightly positive spin into a world that is incredibly challenging for lots of people. Lots of people are stuck at home. Lots of people have relatives and friends that are hugely affected by this pandemic. But we want to be a little bit of light relief and highlight some of the better news stories. We're not going to deny that coronavirus is out there and exists because, you know, frankly, even the and finally parts of the news now have some link to coronavirus. So, We're not going to pretend it's not there, but we are going to try and give a relatively positive and optimistic view of the world in this challenging situation.
1: On that note, why don't we both share something we've been enjoying about being stuck at home? Personally, I've been enjoying being around in the evenings a lot more. You know, normally my job means that I'm out a lot in the evenings during the week, eating food prepared by other people in restaurants and bars and all kinds of stuff. So I've been really enjoying the joy of cooking, making all kinds of different dishes, getting out all my old cookbooks and digging through them and trying to be resourceful with what we could find in the shops when they were a bit bare. Uh, what about you? What have, what have you been enjoying about being at home?
0: Well, I think similarly, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the kitchen. I really enjoy making food go a long way. I really enjoy inventing dishes with what I've got. So that's been a sort of pleasure and a joy. I've obviously been spending more time with my daughter than I would have been. So no that's doubt. been nice. And, I, I, and having recently, a couple of weeks ago, moved Bristol getting to sort of get to know the house and the area a little bit, albeit in slightly strange circumstances. So, you know, those things have been great. I've been really enjoying my walks and, and my daily exercise. But I suppose it's important to say, actually, this isn't just some like disconnected view of coronavirus that we're bringing to you because actually, Rob, you've had it.
1: Yeah, I have. So to anyone listening to this, who's wondering what it was like, I guess I can share a bit of insight. So I got it on a at some point, probably on a trip to Austria just before the lockdowns all began, kind of right up to the wire. And, you know, in hindsight, maybe that trip shouldn't have happened and all of the people that went on it shouldn't have gone. But at the time, you know, the world felt like a very different place. And it was, when would it have been? It would have been in February. So Wuhan was kind of, was under lockdown, but it wasn't like a thing anywhere else yet. So we were kind of aware of it. And there were like a few people kicking about in the airport wearing masks and stuff. But basically it was still fine. And yeah, on that trip, there are about 50 people that went on it. It was a kind of conference that took place in Austria. And half the people that went ended up getting some variant of corona. And the symptoms varied massively. But for me, it was two weeks in bed, basically, with what was sort of similar to a really nasty flu, a temperature. It had some weird side effects, like a sort of change to sense of taste and smell. So if you're sat at home getting a bit fed up and wondering if, if, if it's worth it, I can assure you, I would not recommend getting Corona. It was not much fun at all. And I think what's going on is justified because I was lucky that it didn't get more serious, but I was completely wiped out for two weeks.
0: And you are young and healthy and you've even got a bench press in your living room. So, uh, you know, you're in a, a low risk category and it still wiped you out for a couple of weeks. So I guess that message of stay home is one to be taken seriously. And that probably leads us into talking about some of the news, which would make me say, It's the news. It's the news. Oh, yes, it is the corona news.
1: The corona news, the corona good news, hopefully. We're going to try and focus on the good stuff as much as we can, because there's plenty of bad stuff out there. I think the thing that I'd like to start with that really stood out for me, and I remember seeing this actually early on because it was part of the analysis people were doing of whether this was as serious in China as people thought it might be, is pollution. So, as a result of the lockdown that happened, and, you know, first in China and now everywhere, there's been huge reductions in the observable levels of CO2 and and, and NO2 in the atmosphere, pollution, basically, which is incredible. And some of the early footage of this was released by ESA, the European Space Agency, and then subsequently by NASA, basically showing the sky from above over China in places where they'd locked down. And, And it was like night and day, before and after the level of sort of smog and and general pollution in those areas, which is fantastic.
0: The thing that's interesting about this is we've got a very relevant guest to this story coming up later in the show, and one that we can perhaps explore a little bit more with Elliot from Offset Earth.
1: Yeah, so we'll be interviewing uh, Elliot, uh, who's part of the amazing subscription service to help you offset your climate footprint, Offset Earth, later today uh, on this episode, but a sort of conveniently related good news story there about the dropping levels of pollution as a result of corona and i think that to just sort of build on that another story that i saw that i thought was really interesting was apparently the noise pollution reduction is giving certain animals that rely on on noise to communicate a chance to to flourish and and particularly birds apparently stand to really benefit the most have you seen anything about this
0: i haven't rob tell me more
1: so birds you know obviously prevalent in a lot of cities and in those areas there's normally just so much low level noise all day that it impacts on their ability to communicate with each other. So, you know, the birds apparently, and I must say I wasn't an expert on this before I read the story, but birds send signals to each other through song as a means of survival. And when they can't hear or be heard, they struggle to find a mate. They struggle to defend their territory from predators. So the local cat has a bit more of a chance of uh, of snagging the robin. So, yeah, it's really interesting to see how these things are impacting nature and wildlife. And honestly, I think this is kind of like a massive experiment unfolding before our eyes. I think there's so much about what's going on with Corona that people just have no idea about, really, in terms of the impact it's going to have. And I suspect we'll be studying this for years to come and finding all kinds of sort of secondary and and tertiary results from what's been going on yeah i think it's absolutely
0: fascinating and i think it is it both in terms of the environment sustainability but economically you know what happens after this what's the long term impact on on the economy and 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 you know it's not that long 2018 march that we were in south by southwest talking about an optimistic future where there could be a second renaissance and one of the things that caused the original renaissance the renaissance as it's more commonly known
1: (laughs) yeah just the renaissance (laughs) the the, The first one the the original renaissance the og renaissance yes
0: as opposed to the robin jim renaissance the second one that that hasn't occurred yet
1: equally well known so definitely needs to be uh, framed in that way
0: yeah Yeah. um uh, we one of the things we talked about was of course the plague being one of the things that contributed to causing the renaissance and Whilst this isn't as severe as the plague, and 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 we really hope that it isn't, it is interesting what everyone being stuck at home and, and maybe thinking about their lives in different ways, what that might create creatively from this.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, on that subject in terms of creativity, one of the things that a lot of people, businesses, universities have been turning their hand to is trying to create either protective equipment or health equipment. For example, one of our team at Wahai, a guy called John Tottenham, who I'm going to shout out by name for his amazing contribution, Has been using his 3D printer he has at home to create face masks for local care homes and hospitals and just donating them by the hundred as he can print them out, which is incredible.
0: And I think that links to our next news item, which is that the first new medical ventilator to treat people with severe symptoms of COVID 19 has been approved in the UK. And that's a partnership between Formula One and a company who make a device called, uh, they're called Penlon, and uh, it's the Penlon Prima. ES02. What's interesting is that this company already makes ventilators, but they've never had the capability to mass produce them. And other companies have come together to help them create them at pace. So they've gone from being able to produce 50 to 80 a week to being able to create 1,500 a week, which is a remarkable testament to companies coming together at a time of crisis.
1: Well, you know, we'll come on to community in a minute, but just one more note on ventilators, which is that in the States, a ventilator prior to this crisis to be purchased from a specialist ventilator manufacturer would have cost somewhere between thirty and $50,000 per device, which is absolutely insane. And the smart people at MIT in America came up with a design for a ventilator using off the shelf products. And it comes in a sort of hard plastic carry box, and you can put this whole thing together for under $1,000 per unit and you could build one at home if you were that way inclined. And this was the whole promise of the second Renaissance pitch that we were delivering, right? And and you can go back and listen to this in our, our previous episodes. It's, it's the one where we were live at South by Southwest, as Jim mentioned. And the whole promise of what we were trying to establish was this idea that when humans are given time and a challenge, they can be incredibly creative and resourceful. And so you know, the world has come together against this sort of common adversary in in Corona. And some of the stuff that's going on is amazing. Like I'm not sure if you saw the story about how Germany was taking infected patients from Italy and Spain and treating them in Germany, right? Like that is absolutely incredible stuff. And there was all the doctors, was it was it Cuba or the Cuban doctors went to Italy? And all just like went to help because of the outbreak there, so it's 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 really heartwarming to see that and and I think this comes on to the new story about the kind of community work that's happening and and the nHS stuff. What are your thoughts on it, Jim?
0: Yeah, I think it's amazing. I think, you know, from an engineering point of view, as we we're talking in those couple of examples, there's amazing, there's amazing things that people have done really quickly. Um, you know, UCL and Mercedes worked together to make a CPAP machine. In the community, you know, um, uh, the, there's great examples of people coming out onto their streets, starting up WhatsApp groups across the country, volunteering. volunteering for the NHS is huge, but also just people on their own street, putting leaflets through doors and, and supporting people. Along the way, there are some people trying to take advantage of the situation, which I think, you know, has to be absolutely condemned. But the 99.999% of everyone is about how do we get through this? How do we get through it together?
1: Totally. And, and, you know, we're recording this on a Thursday. And, you know, normally we wouldn't reveal that because it spoils the magic of the recording. But in about an hour's time, every single person on our streets will go outside their houses and clap together for the NHS which is like seems like such a small thing really but it's quite profound experience I don't know about you but the first time I went out and did it I was really shocked by how many people were outside and my road is not a road where everybody's really close with each other there were people standing outside their houses all up and down my street who I've never even seen let alone kind of had any eye contact with or acknowledgement and it really felt for the first time on my southwest london road that there was a bit of community and people were coming together and it was amazing it was a really special feeling
0: you find out a lot about your area based on that 8 o'clock moment so i've rented a house in a relatively middle class part of bristol and people were sort of coming out and clanging pans here and right. uh, you could tell they were expensive pans they had some white- <laughs> They had some weight to them.
1: The uh, the copper base has a slightly different tone to it, I understand, and the uh, the gold handle very visible as it caught the glint of the evening sun.
0: Exactly, um, and some children have made a, uh, a a sort of a poster, if you like, a, a, a sort of hand painted poster that's hanging on a sheet outside their home here, um, nice. which says, uh, uh, "Oh my God, there's no fusili." Um, <laughs> so I think that says a lot about an area.
1: Oh my God! Wow. We're going to have to stop there, I think. That's uh, that's just the best possible way we could end that story. The last sort of global news story I wanted to cover, I've been ribbed a bit on this podcast for my love of US tech magnates, notably Mr. Musk. Has, has uh,
0: Elon done something you're pleased about?
1: No, we're not going to talk about Elon. We're going to talk about my other love, which is Jack Dorsey of Twitter fame. So I quite publicly claimed... That I thought Jack was a decent guy, which is not something that everybody agrees with. I know our previous guest Dan Harvey was very surprised and a little disappointed with me for. Uh, he still
0: talks for, about it now
1: for, for my positive comments about Jack. Well, well, Jack did me proud over the last few weeks because he came out and said that he's going to donate what is by far the most significant donation of any of the kind of U.S. billionaire tech set. He's giving about thirty percent of his net worth to charity. Uh, which is around about a billion dollars. It's worth about four billion. You know, ridiculous, frankly.
0: He's no Bill Gates.
1: He's certainly wealthy enough. And I'm very, very pleased that he's decided to put such a significant amount of that up for good causes. And the first cause that he's tackling is this pandemic and the anticipated economic turmoil as a result of it. So fair play to Jack quite literally putting his money where his mouth is and and giving back a significant portion of the wealth he's accrued over the years.
0: Yeah, well done to Jack and and an example for many people to follow who are successful founders. I've added a new feature to the end of the news section, Rob. Oh, really? How do you feel about this?
1: I've just spotted it in the notes here, Jim. Oh, no, it's, it's Jim's local news, everybody. I mean, the Fusili story felt like local news to me. I'm not sure we can top that. What, what else have you got for us?
0: So I've moved to Bristol uh, and I wanted to just highlight a little story from here that uh, Banksy posted some pictures on Instagram this week where he'd uh, got a, a, a collection of his work in his bathroom with the caption, my wife hates it when I work from home. So <laughs> there you go, a little bit of Bristolian <laughs> action.
1: You're suddenly feeling incredibly proud of Banksy's life and work, aren't you, as a, as a Bristolian? Funny yeah, how that goes. I
0: think he's uh, my neighbour.
1: Have you found yourself listening to more drum and bass since arriving in Bristol?
0: Yeah, me and DJ Fresh are, are here listening to um, drum and bass, who is now actually a programmer.
1: Yes, so I hear that's about the extent of my Bristol banter, I think. We've exhausted it early on. Is there anything else you want to say about Bristol?
0: No, I'm still warming up here, but um, I... Um, I'm going to try and keep Bristol banter going throughout the next few episodes and we'll see how we go and see if I get accepted in the Southwest. Because when I've previously looked at moving to Cornwall, I definitely wasn't accepted.
1: Well, lucky us. I'm sure our listeners are looking forward to that as much as I am. And frankly, by complete coincidence, our guest today and also our planned guest for next episode also both live in Bristol. So my apologies to all of you. You are going to have to listen to a lot of Bristol loving from Jim and our guests. I am just as uninterested as you are but we'll uh, we'll go through that together
0: so for those of you who listen to us from the US or from other countries bristol is a, a southwest of london kind of in this sort of corner of england and <sighs> and not really anything else matters than that really doesn't nobody it? cares no it's <laughs> it's a, it's a city cares. in the uk
1: i'm teasing it's a lovely city in the in the southwest of the uk and i'm very pleased that you're uh, you're settled in there so um so anyway that was the news for our first corona episode of alex's or
0: oh, rub have you got a story from your CTO? Your story from your CTO? You've
1: I forgot what bit, the jingle's like for that, so a, I made up a new one. A little bit yeah. two-tone, little a bit, little, bit, little bit reggae on the uh, the jingle for the CTO today. Uh, yes, I do have a Corona CTO story. My CTO, like all the rest of us, is holed up at home with his family. He has got two young daughters, both of school age, and I understand that those of you with... Uh, kids of school age are having among the hardest times of everybody at the moment. Trying to do your jobs and homeschool children, I think is driving certainly everybody I know in that situation completely insane. My CTO decided that it's important to get out for your daily walk. You're allowed one walk a day or or a trip for some exercise, in addition to a trip to the shops in the UK. And so he felt like a responsible parent that it was a good thing to get out and about and do some exercise. But of course, there's not really much technology involved in a walk. So he decided instead to procure some electric scooters, which are wonderful things. I think maybe we've talked about my love and your hate for electric scooters previously on, on this podcast, but uh, I'm a fan. And so my CTO over the last few weeks has been indulging in a delightful experience of cruising around his uh, the rural area where he lives on his daily outing on an electric scooter on the incredibly empty roads which I'm sure is delightful and, and probably not that energetic. But uh, yeah, there you go. That's what he's been up to.
0: I'm going to question whether that constitutes a form of exercise.
1: I think it's exercise. You need a bit of core strength. So it's
0: working your core, is it? That's how it counts as exercise. Yeah. Oh, what are you doing? I'm, I'm doing my core exercises. You have
1: to turn your neck a little bit to, you know, make sure you don't crash into somebody.
0: It's feeling tenuous from my point of view, but I'm delighted that your CTO is having fun on electric scooters.
1: And hey, I mean, it's a nice way to get the shopping back from the shops and it's something fun for the kids to do as well. So um, I think I, the, the, I assure you, he he is observing the rules.
0: I'm sure he is. I feel like, you know, I don't know your CTO well enough to know this, but I feel like he's a stickler for the rules.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, you would be right about that. Um, so, what, what gave you that impression?
0: I don't know. Like, a, Well, it's this weird thing, isn't it, right? like Someone that wants to know all the rules and chooses when to break the rules through a sort of legitimacy narrative that they've created for themselves, like the car wash story back in episode two or whenever it was. It's like, this system and this situation is broken, so I will use my skills to take advantage of it. If these people were doing better at what they were meant to do, I would comply.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Suddenly, if something is obstructive, then all bets are off.
0: If someone has exposed their IP address, then it's their fault if I use their car wash for free.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I suppose that's about right, isn't it? There we go. Anyway, there's a a corona story from my CTO, and I'm sure we'll have another one for you next month. Jim, as our listeners may remember, you recently became a father, um, very recently, actually, last time we recorded, and so you've been settling into that. And you, like any good technology podcast host, have a love for what we coined as dad tech,
0: dad a segment
1: tech. which I get really excited dad about, tech. as is as pretty clear.
0: Your wife um, gets more excited about it than you do.
1: She does, which is a, a grave concern, let me assure you. So, Jen, what dad tech has entered the home since we last recorded and, and what's, uh, what's changing your life?
0: So, through the post, as we moved into a house instead of a flat, uh, we needed to be able to monitor... Millie remotely from downstairs and so a video monitoring setup has entered my life and so I can now see whether or not my daughter is asleep or awake and decide whether or not to come and save her from her restlessness. So my new dad tech is video dad tech and I've got to say what's slightly disappointing about the tech in this space is that about 100 quid buys you something that's fairly disappointing, if I'm honest, because the battery runs out quickly. It's like having a phone 20 years ago. Battery runs out pretty quickly and it gets upset if you don't stay within some sort of range of where the other half of the unit is. It's like bad walkie-talkies.
1: Ah, that sounds ropey. Does it like upload all the data to the cloud and do machine learning on the images and tell you about patterns in her sleep or anything cool like that?
0: No, there is one of those, but that was 250 quid. And I'm like, I'm not sure I need that data insight.
1: <laughs> Fair enough, I suppose. There we go. That's Dantec. I suppose. Well, let me finish off then, before we get Elliot in and do our interview. Let me finish off by asking you ultimately, this podcast is about how technology is changing people's lives. What technology has been really changing your life uh, over this period? I mean, for me, obviously, video conferencing has been like incredibly pervasive in our lives over the last few weeks. And You and I do video calls all day long for our jobs anyway, right? As CEOs of our businesses and, you know, meetings and conference calls and all that stuff. But I've never socialized on video calls until Corona. So I guess I'll answer my own question before throwing it to you, which is, you know, for me, learning how to socialize on video calls has been the kind of thing that's changed my life with technology over the last few weeks. What about you?
0: I would agree. So I'm, I'm not going to add something different because I think that's taking different forms. So you and I uh, and our partners ha- hung out on Saturday night and we had like we used house party and we've also done a Zoom catch up and we played games remotely, which was, was was certainly the first time that I think I'd really done that. We've done a couple of things with work. That's a big change. I think doing that with your family and elderly relatives, I think is also a huge, a huge change. And, and yeah. sort of, I guess as a sort of remote way of as a sort of digitally native person, trying to make them feel okay about the situation at the moment uh, and sort of being like, we can still take part. But I've also tried to do a few more analog things. So I've written to my grandma, who's 90 and isolating. Well, like you in, actually
1: posted her a letter or you just... Or actually,
0: I mean, it was a card, but, uh, but I, put, I put something in a post box that she received with some photos of Millie and stuff like that. And wow. I, I don't normally engage in much of that analog stuff. So there's also been some analog changes to my life.
1: You know, you mentioned the sort of video hangout we had, and I, I thought just a sort of extra point to that is we had dinner, right? Like, that was the thing that made it, for me, a new experience that felt very different, was that we sat there and we, we agreed what time we'd all have our dinner on the table in different houses in different parts of the country. And we set up our video calls and we all sat there and ate and kind of chatted and somehow it worked. I mean... I guess if you'd asked me 6 months ago if I thought that would be a fun experience I'd have told you absolutely not why would we do that let's just do let's just eat first and then do the call but it's funny how we're trying to sort of recreate those physical experiences in, in digital forms
0: yeah definitely and and or we, well, you'd have said let's all just go for dinner and the weird thing about it is that like, that both of you then have to cook whereas if you go to someone's house only one person like makes four meals but we so we all had to expend the effort to uh, pull together a, a shared meal experience and, and we didn't actually cook the same thing but we have talked about next time whether we might cook the same thing so we're having the same meal at the same time yeah
1: I like that I think that I think we're going to try that I think that's going to be fun and um this week I in I'm going to my first dinner event in a work setting where it's London only unfortunately for the Bristolians and, and others but if you're in London they can deliver you a gourmet meal for 35 quid so everyone's eating the same food and it gets delivered And they are going to provide the recipes for people who aren't in the catchment area as well. So everyone can eat the same thing. And then they're going to do like a kind of corporate roundtable dinner format event all on video. Again, like this stuff just would never have happened six months ago. And the thing that's really interesting to me is not just that it's happening and that some of these things are working but whether these things will remain afterwards, right? Like, is this just going to be stuff that people get used to and realise actually it works really well? And then maybe in a year or in two, when the world has returned to normal, will we still be having video dinner parties? I I I don't know the answer. What do you think?
0: Yeah, it's difficult to know. I mean, uh, one of the other areas in my life that's changed a lot, uh, as you know, uh, I have a side hustle called Glow that I work on with Frankie Friday. And we organised physical dance fitness classes in gyms, mostly in East London, and for people's hen parties and things like that. And we pivoted the entire business pretty much overnight from going, we? Oh, is any money going to arrive into this business at all? How are you going to earn a living to uh, along with lots of other people doing online classes, and they're being done for donations to the trainers. So whoever the teacher is, keeps all of that money. But that's pivoted the business overnight and actually been exceptionally successful. So I think to your point, you know, I saw this week, someone in Russia is doing our 80s aerobics class, right? And and, (laughs) that's cool. And writing in Russian and like Frankie's on Instagram going, I don't know what this says, but it looks good. um, (laughs) Because it's in (laughs) Russian. And and like, is there going to be a demand for people to engage with people across the world in things like that, where, where people are sort of coming together to do things in a different way?
1: Yeah, and, and like you say, you know, maybe you, you suddenly you realise actually you've been missing a trick this whole time, and that Glow could have been an international business, right? So it's um, well, the it's really inter- interesting
0: the interesting thing is, so for Glow, which doesn't own its own premises, there's always been a middle person, if you like, who's a venue owner, and they're obviously finding it really challenging at the moment. But perhaps that's a change that was going on in the market anyway. That's what sort of digitisation does. It, it puts together the person that wants something together with the person that provides something quite directly. And that's you know the change that happened in the record industry, and I think that slowly finds its way through other industries. And this has acted as I think as an accelerator for people to experiment with doing things in ways they never would have thought about doing them.
1: And some of that stuff's a one way street, right? Like I've seen some some commentary on that. Maybe this will be the end of certain types of advertising because. But you know, one of the things that everyone culls when these sort of crises happen financially and with the economy is advertising, and there's a there's a lot of speculation that actually advertising will never return to its previous form, and that what emerges will be the kind of next wave of advertising. And I'm sure that's true in all kinds of industries, fitness probably being one of them, right? So, yeah, really interesting times. Yeah. So uh, next up, we'll have an interview with the amazing Elliot Code, who. Full disclosure is my partner in a, a business that we we set up a year ago. Uh, I'm simply a non-exec chairman. Elliot's the real brains behind it and and doing you know the the, the legwork. Uh, it's called Offset Earth. We've mentioned it on this podcast before. I know a few people that found out about Offset Earth on this podcast have gone and signed up and done incredible things where they've signed up for hundreds of people and you know are using it to offset the products that they sell. And and you know thank you so much for your support. So we're delighted to bring you an interview with Elliot hear a bit more about his story and all the amazing work that they're doing. Indeed. Should
0: we uh, reset the studio, as we tend to say? I mean, we're not even in the same studio.
1: Yeah. Let's add Elliot to the video call. I will kick things off by saying that we have just reaffirmed why we normally do all of our interviews in person in a studio. After 25 minutes of messing around, getting a cloud recording tool to work, embarrassing, really, given that I run a technology company. But here we are with Mr. Jimbo's coming live from Bristol and our spectacular guest, Mr. Elliot Code, also from Bristol. Chaps, are you in the same place?
0: Not quite.
1: I need to be in Bristol, is what we've established early on today. Um, I mean, you're so
0: far West London, it's almost Bristol.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I suppose so. So here we are for our first Alexa stop from lockdown. We're breaking our rule, as I mentioned already, in terms of always doing all our interviews in a studio because we are not legally allowed to do so. So I think we get a pass. And we're joined by, as I already mentioned, Elliot Code, who is my partner in crime and the leader of Offset Earth, which I know some of our listeners are big fans of and subscribe to. Elliot, tell us a little bit about Offset Earth. What is it?
2: Yes, well, thanks very much for having me on this. So Offset Earth is a way for you to contribute to the climate crisis at the next level. So beyond recycling, beyond choosing a kind of low carbon diet and spending money wisely this is a way of you doing more i wasn't feeling that i was really connected with my contribution so we've Earth, it's a subscription service to directly funding climate solutions and so what does that actually mean so for four pound fifty a month as an individual your entire life is offset by funding great climate solutions. You're also funding reforestation. So you're actually planting 12 trees every single month, and you start to grow your own forest. You have this profile where all your impact is essentially kind of coming to life every month. And then for business, we have a similar program, it's called the Climate Positive Workforce, which is a program that is suitable for any business of any size, rather than just being carbon neutral, which is unsuitable for lots of businesses. So we're just all about improving the connectivity to essentially contributing at another level, which we could really do with at this moment.
1: So it's been going for about a year, I guess, is when, we, yeah. when we got going, right? About a year ago. And this is fun. This is the first time I've interviewed someone about something I'm also personally involved in. So I can like ask you <laughs> yeah. questions in a really like tactical way. I guess I should say we rather than you for the rest of this interview. So how much impact have we achieved, Elliot, in the last year? So
2: we've got two types of impact. What we do is we make carbon emission reductions for today and carbon emission reductions in the future. So we plant a lot of trees, so 1.3 million, almost 1.4. These are our carbon emissions that will be reduced over the years. But the carbon emissions removed today through supporting other projects is around 50 or 60,000 tons of CO2, which is like a heavy amount of CO2 to remove. If you think of like one plane trip to Amsterdam, that sounds like a good trip. That's 0.15 tonnes of CO2. So 60,000 tonnes, that's a lot of plane trips that you've uh, essentially avoided or reduced.
1: And it's cumulative as well, right? It's a subscription. So every month the platform grows, every month we're rolling over that impact and it's growing and growing and growing. So you know, yeah. even if we did nothing at this time next year, it would probably at least have doubled. But that's due to the you know, yeah. incredible growth that we're seeing, right? or That you're seeing, it looks like this thing should continue to just create incrementally more impact month per month absolutely yeah so we were really happy with crossing
2: the million tree mark but soon we're going to be doing that every single month and then one of our spreadsheets will be doing that every week or other day
0: i guess there's a role for me to play here that i feel like what i need to do is prevent this becoming a love-in between rob and elliot (laughs) where you describe the business and all the amazing things that you're doing i feel like i've got to like pull it back and ask some sort of difficult and challenging questions along the way but I'm going to ease us in, okay? So on your website, and when thinking about offsetting and, and the climate, and we, you know, we want to broaden this conversation to the broader topic. So we're hoping to be positive in this series of interviews we're doing because we're all in lockdown. So hoping to bring a little bit of a positive spin on what's going on in the world. But. I wanted to start by asking you, what is a really
1: negative question?
0: <laughs> well, no, it's not a really negative question. It is, but, <laughs> but, but you describe on the website, people that lead a moderate lifestyle. And I'd like to know if my lifestyle is moderate or excessive, because those are the two words that you use. So could you sort of describe to me a, a, a moderate lifestyle and what you would consider an excessive lifestyle? Because mm. I reckon Rob and I have some friends, particularly in some of the, the groups we're amongst, I reckon some of the people we know lead an excessive lifestyle.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay. That's the deep end of starting. So It cuts to the core, but it's exactly what we're about. So how do you go about defining moderate and excessive and all sorts of things? First of all, it definitely is relative. Anyone from the UK, for example, has a very high carbon footprint comparatively on the world stage. It's about twice that of developing nations or maybe 10 times more for many of the nations. Within our kind of developed nation bubble, we have got to kind of be relative to each other. So you don't just get to say I got a moderate lifestyle, you have to associate with one of three different kind of personality types, like lifestyle traits of are you a this just the kind of the kind of the proper identify in eco category, so not flying very much at all. So maybe like one medium haul flight a year maybe two like return flights a couple of short hauls just not splurging lots of disposable cash you know if that's you because you're not being paid that much basically you become excessive in your lifestyle when you have a lot of money now this is a real deep end here but you can be really is that is that
0: universally true are there some people that earn well that aren't excessive
2: is almost universally true there are obviously obviously exceptions but the more money you earn or have to spend the greater your footprint is there's a real correlation with it you can avoid flying let's say but you're probably going to end up spending that money and whose pockets are you lining when you spend that money on some like a really phenomenal i don't know bamboo cotton wool supply system that is like expensive cotton wool for your ears and they're very expensive but What is that money going to be spent on by the person that's receiving your money? And so money does have this intrinsic carbon footprint. And so it's extremely difficult to spend a lot of money without actually nailing the planet in terms of carbon emissions. So funding climate solutions is one of the only things that has a negative carbon footprint. The other things kind of hover around low to mid to high. But then back to an excessive lifestyle, you just kind of find yourself in one of these kind of personality traits where you're flying, you know, let's say half a dozen times or more in terms of long haul. You'll find yourself, I don't know, in hotels and restaurants and all sorts of things, and that's like kind of our kind of core principle that we're not going to make you enter in your exact carbon footprint and calculate it. So oh, like how many flights did I do last year? Like how many times did I go to a restaurant last year? It's really difficult to get like a strong level of understanding of your carbon footprint. And for the most part, you just fall into one of these three categories and we make sure that your carbon footprint isn't a barrier to entry. It's like, right, who do I associate myself with? It might not be the most exact thing, but I'm here to repair the planet. And I care about doing my bit and you know, not worrying over the 0.1 tonne of CO2 here and there, because in the grand scheme of things, it's not what we're actually after. So there's a few things wrapped up in there, but you tend to associate yourself with like one of three broad personality types. Now, if you go onto Offset Earth in Singapore, for example, you'll get given a different carbon footprint that would need to be offset. So three of the same personality types, but the data that you have available on a national level is very certain whereas the data you have on a personal level isn't. And so when you're in Singapore looking at our platform, we know with a better certainty of how many tons to offset for someone who lives from your background, then combined with the personality type. So there's a, there's a few things. Is it higher Elliot, in Singapore? It's fractionally lower. Getting into the weeds a bit, there's a real issue at the moment that the UK has and every government right now, where when we talk about a carbon footprint, we talk about the emissions that happened, that occurred within our actual home nation. So the carbon footprint in the UK is around five and a half, six tons of CO2. It's been coming down heavily since 1990. On one side of the coin, like something to be lauded, it's like, oh, fantastic. But it's really only a tiny part of the picture. When you consider what in your house is made in England, what food is it that you're eating that was made in England? Your carbon footprint that is stated by all nations of the world doesn't include imported emissions this this idea of embedded carbon and so offset earth is probably one of the only well i say probably i haven't found any that do do what we do is we don't take that carbon footprint on the national level we take other data sets which show the amount of imported emissions on a per country basis and so it's not five and a half tons. it's all of a sudden 11 tons and then what we do is we add another 15 percent just to kind of firmly push you into the kind of climate positive category So to report on just a national footprint is a real shortcoming and really dangerous. And politically, the UK is going like, look how great we're doing. It's like, nah, man, it's like the steel industry that was over here. We're just importing our steel and those emissions aren't anywhere to be seen on our reporting. So it's actually a really concerning kind of metric. Something that we're all relying on is only half the picture.
0: It's fascinating. And and you touched on something that I think is really interesting when talking about that about the carbon footprint of people living in developing countries, developing nations. And I suppose maybe this comes to like a human right. So of all the stuff we've had in countries like the UK over the last 100 years, 50 years, 20 years, that sort of human desire to have the stuff that other people have had, and then the planet's need maybe for people to be less consumer-based in their societies. What do you think about that tension between you know, people saying they want a fast car or a new washing machine or that they haven't previously been able to have, but as, as those countries develop, those opportunities starting to open up?
2: There's some things like, um, for example, plastic pollution, which is one part of the issue, but the kind of carbon emissions with, with something like that, we're going to really struggle with it. I've got a bit of a background with greenwashing because carbon offset is almost the epitome of greenwashing. So I'm really aware of how it can be used.
1: And Sorry, edit. what is greenwashing? Some of our uh, listeners won't be familiar with the term.
2: Yeah, so greenwashing is when you essentially do an action or communicate in a way that you've stated that something you've done good with the planet in mind, or you've done something in a sustainable manner, but in reality, it's just kind of a diversion where below the surface there are carbon emissions you know there is damage to the planet
1: i don't know a chemical production company dumping chemicals in a river while replacing one single-use plastics in their cafeteria or something like that yes yeah yeah Yeah. exactly yeah so sustainable
2: products they do have the label of being sustainable but for most people you'd think that i'm buying a sustainable product and therefore it's okay to the planet but it's still a lot of these products are a long way away from being fully decarbonized. is decarbonized in not having a carbon footprint whatsoever or is completely neutralized. And so there is this massive issue with buying things and personal possessions and anything in the, in the material world. It's really tricky and we're going to absolutely struggle for it. And which is why something like what we're doing, where you're directly funding climate solutions, is really important. Because We're just not able to have material things, some things you want to have and some things you need to have. But both of them, you aren't able to have to have this essentially kind of like carbon neutral footprint. So you need this other option here to buy us time until we can go fully carbon neutral in everything that we do. So personal effects and businesses and all sorts of things, you know, the sustainable product rarely does exist. It was just kind of a gradation on how sustainable a product actually is.
0: This podcast is about how technology is changing people's lives and technology has transformed how power can be generated in recent years. But I wondered if there's any other technologies associated with climate change or offsetting that have excited you or that you think show great potential for the future.
2: There's a few coming out of the woodwork. I've seen a lot of projects which happen in developing nations and often they are the kind of areas which need the kind of biggest need and they also pose the biggest risk from the climate point of view. If we don't get things right there then we were in a pickle then we're going to be, even, be in an even bigger pickle and I've seen some amazing projects. There's This is one that we're looking at getting behind called SolarSat and it's just this I don't know kind of Plasticky kind of membrane, you just fill it full of dirty water from a, I don't know, kind of dirty river source. So, areas that don't have access to clean water. And there's this kind of like chemical reaction that happens when you leave it out in the sun for like five hours. And it essentially converts 10 or 20 liters of like really dirty water source into like 99.9% purified. And something like that poses an amazing opportunity. Yes, there's like a bag that has to be, which is plastic. But on the grand scheme of things, what people in these local communities are having to do is they're having to chop down their local woods or rainforests, use that wood to burn this dirty water, and then essentially all these carbon emissions. And that sort of project represents like a real need. And then similarly, there's these offering out these fuel-efficient cooking stoves. I think it's like 60%, okay, at least 50% of the entire world is cooking their food and boiling their water on just an open stove, on an open, essentially like a campfire, or what we'd know as a campfire. And that's ruthlessly inefficient. So these cooking stoves, which are repurposed from kind of little oil cans, like olive oil and all sorts of kind of big cans used in kind of catering industry, repurposed, really cheap to manufacture and then distribute. But the opportunity of 55%, let's say, of the entire world using these cooking stoves Means that when you use a cooking stove, there's at least 70%, maybe 75% less fuel needed to burn. And again, you've got this kind of major opportunity for kind of just massive scale change. And that sort of thing is absolutely bonkers.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? How it's easy to get excited by things like the drones that can shoot tree saplings into the ground and all that kind of like slightly sophisticated, I guess, technology, progressive technology, but actually in the context of sustainability and carbon reduction, there's some really basic problems to solve that have quite sort of analog and simple solutions to have the biggest impact. Like, for example, stopping people cooking on a cooking fire by repurposing an oil drum, you know. On the face of it, it seems like it's relatively simple, but the impact is so significant because of the scale of some of these problems. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Clean water, access to toilets and stuff is still like a massive thing mm. preparing food how do you create lighting in a lot of places you know these things are have, have massive impact
2: so i'll give you one that's got like proper tech my background is tech and uh, got me really excited so one of the ways of preventing co2 from entering the atmosphere is protecting prime rainforests so tropical rainforests from preventing deforestation and being cut down and being degraded there's a real issue with supporting projects like that on the one hand you should absolutely support the projects because growing all these trees but these trees are already established and mature they need just as much protection as reforesting but there's a real problem which is monitoring so deforestation happens like almost undetectable levels where these very small pockets of bad actors are gutting the rainforest and monitoring is actually a really important aspect. Up until recently, monitoring has involved expensive environmental consultants literally walking around in the rainforest, working out whether certain areas have been cut down or not. But one of the projects that we supported last month was protecting uh, a part of the Brazilian rainforest, which is being monitored by a company called Pashama. And they've recently partnered up with Microsoft and they're doing amazing things to kind of make their entire company properly carbon negative. Their company is working with microsatellites in adding kind of computer vision into the photos that they're taking, kind of near real time. So kind of way more updated than the kind of the annual update that normal satellite photography updates. And they convert the photos into essentially carbon graphs. So instead of seeing kind of just this green area, you just see carbon stock. And it highlights kind of the rate of change. And it means that you can deploy security protection forces. Or if the community there is still relying on it, then you can essentially pay the community to buy wood from elsewhere. And it means that you've just all of a sudden got this massive visibility on something the size of the Amazonian rainforest, which is comparable to like the size of Europe, you know, from some aspects, is absolutely huge. And so that sort of thing is making projects way more valuable and valid and you've got a lot more trust going in that if you're protecting the rainforest that has actually protected as a really fantastic things are happening with tech.
0: Talking about what you're prepared to fund, you talked about some bad actors there, and not just people that are in daytime soaps. So people doing things, uh, deforestation, and that's because they want to gain or benefit from that. Would you consider funding things to address those problems in society in places? Or is that way outside the remit that you're interested in?
2: Sometimes they do get wrapped up into one of the same. So for reforestation, so planting trees, What you have to do is when you're not just funding a tree to be planted in the ground, you're also funding an entire sustainability program where the original reasons why it was deforested in the first place, they need to be addressed at exactly the same time. So when we're planting your trees, we're also part of that money goes into community initiatives where they're kind of a much greater awareness of the programs you're working with. Why you wouldn't necessarily plant a forest by drone is the number one reason for deforestation is community disengagement. So if you employ a community to plant their rainforest, then there's this kind of love, there's this kind of caretakership, and then Poverty is the primary factor of deforestation in the first place. So we're supporting a project in Madagascar where it's community-led reforestation. And these local communities, it's the first time they've ever been paid anything that's such as the extreme poverty in these areas and it's not just planting a tree it's a 30 year to 100 year sustainability program which means that it's the long view so it's an amazing employment opportunity so they sometimes really do come hand in hand so those sort of projects are really easy for us to kind of get behind what's more difficult is for example education of women in developing nations where there's a correlation of birth rates, kind of spiraling birth rates, poorly educated girls. And one of the biggest opportunities for mitigating climate change is this kind of education. But it's not something that you can easily quantify. And it's also complicated. And when you think of offsetting your carbon footprint, I don't think it's necessarily where you want to go to to think of your footprint being offset to someone who's being educated about all the things in life. Although it's a really great thing to do, it's just maybe just a little weirder. There are some areas where they're not obvious choices for us to kind of get behind. Plus, having any certainty about a ton of carbon that's been offset by educating a woman just feels strange. And how would you model that? Something like preventing deforestation, installing a wind turbine, solar installation. They're what we call high impact, low risk projects to get behind. And that's the bulk of our projects that we have to work with because there are higher risk projects, but it should never be the kind of the backbone of the sorts of projects that we get behind.
0: Building on that, I guess, how do you select the projects that you Work on, and I guess how much money do you put into them, and how? What's the promise that you make to these projects? And would they not happen if you didn't give the money, or are they already going to be happening anyway? How does all of that work?
2: Carbon offsets—you've already heard of it. You've already heard of its rocky history, where I don't know projects. I don't know an like invest, investigative journalist finds out that this project, like, not only didn't deliver but made things worse. For example, those sorts of things about project quality are what have to be overwhelmingly addressed and the way you can do that is through like independent certification so someone who's a body that just has no monetary kind of benefit from saying whether this is a good project or not i'll come back to that in one second but a carbon offset is on a real fundamental level is a way of converting your money into quantifiable carbon emission reductions so It's the best way we can say, you've taken a ton of CO2 out of the atmosphere. Other than that, you don't really have like a methodology and a framework to be able to say, if I support this project, if I just give them a fiver, then they're probably doing good for the environment. They probably are, but you can't put numbers behind it. So carbon offsets, how you get numbers back from what you're doing, that kind of level of certainty. And it's these independent certifications that add this level of quality. There are lots of different certifications. With Offset Earth, we just choose the best because it's not out of reach in terms of pricing. It was one that was created by the WWF and in collaboration with 30 other environmental NGOs. And they essentially created the standard called Gold Standard to put to bed the issues with project quality. They put to bed the idea that any project that is Gold Standard certified has to really benefit at a local level, so community level level, all these other kind of co-benefits and sustainable development goals like improving gender equality and lifting extreme poverty so these projects are great at a local level they're the best and the kind of most certain at the kind of the atmospheric level of carbon in the circulating and so they're a really fantastic standard to go to there are others out there but it's been really convenient for us because our background isn't climate scientists. I've been a keen hobbyist and an environmentalist from my armchair, so to speak. And so it means that we can only select projects which have been vetted at that really exceptional level. We can go, great. So if Gold Standard are happy with it, they're monitoring this actively every six months. They have to have updates from the project site and be independently audited and all that sort of thing. So we'll just buy and fund projects from Gold Standard. And that's how backgrounds of media and tech and design can run something like this that gets us a long way but in our next chapter that we're getting to we need to have our own internal climate science committee and it's definitely something we're working at the moment but someone like gold standard who's very reputable have a very strong track record is the way that we kind of stay kind of impartial and really know that we're getting from the exceptional in terms of the projects that are out
1: there just to add to that so what's been really interesting is that when we started out you know, with this crazy idea, as a little minnow with very small amounts of money to contribute from our initial subscribers, it seemed like the marketplaces for these projects that exist would sustain us, right, that we'd be able to just go to gold standard, you know, to Jim's question, will these projects happen anyway? Well, at that scale, they certainly will happen anyway, you know, there's a certain amount of contribution available for each project. And there's a kind of pipeline of these projects going on all the time. But as the platform has grown and our subscriber base has grown, if our growth rate continues as it has, we're already looking at needing to create our own projects simply to keep up with the demand that we're going to have, which is really interesting. And I was chatting to someone who works in this field, and they were saying that there's been this huge shift globally over the last sort of 24 months, last two years, towards people really starting to take a bit more of an interest in the climate. and. Companies are starting to understand that they need to be more responsible citizens of our planet if they want consumers, right? So mm. it's being driven by profit as much as it's being driven by the kind of ethical and environmental implications, which is an interesting debate. But regardless, it's happening. And so actually, globally, there's going to be a real shortage of these programs in the next few years because of the massive increase in demand. So it's yeah. going to be really interesting, as Elliot says, as, as the team grows you know, and we start to have to move beyond buying these things from third parties and, and perhaps even getting our own programs certified by gold standard so that they meet those criteria is going to be really interesting. And and just one more note on the tree planting thing. So we've been doing the tree planting with Eden Projects in Madagascar. It's funny, like when we started off, Elliot was emailing them and they were like, oh yeah, sure, like whatever you can like, here's a form. Yeah, we'd love to plant some trees for you. Obviously being very supportive, but expecting us to just be planting like, you know, tens of trees or whatever. And then a few months went past and we got to the point where we planted like a couple of hundred thousand trees. And then they're like, oh, yeah, maybe we could like send you some photos of the trees. And now it's got to the point where we have like our own plot, which is all mapped out on Google. And they're talking to Elliot and the team about visiting. And so as we scale up what we're doing, we're starting to be able to get much closer to the individual projects as well, which is fantastic.
2: Absolutely. Oh, yeah. We love our own actual forest. It's a way of kind of reclosing the gap on, say, you sign up and donate these 12 trees where are these trees? And I want to see these trees. So it means that we can keep real tight tabs on the impact
0: that you're making. It's important that not too many people fly to visit the trees though. Yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Unless they upgrade their plan, I guess.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, screw it. You know, if you're on the top plan. No, 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 no. We'll be planting in the UK as well, where we're able to kind of muck in, that's going to be really, really great. So if you want to kind of just put your wellies on and actually plants and trees and like do all the maintenance that comes with it we'll be having some of these kind of open days as well but as rob was saying about the kind of capacity for these projects it is absolutely massive if anyone who's kind of wanting to kind of know more about this world of available climate solutions there's this amazing project called project drawdown and it's a comprehensive collection of the available Climate solutions that exist. And it shows you the capacity for these. So, when I say project like, you know, wind turbines, solar, education for women, all sorts of things, if you add them all up, and then it's around, I think it's around 20 or 30 years worth of global greenhouse emissions. And so, that in theory, you can think of that as almost like a time machine to allow us 30 years worth of decarbonizing, getting the carbon footprint out of our lives. If we fund these solutions at a massive scale, we essentially boot along the kind of the into the long grass our climate peril we're just adding more time which we desperately need so our great mission here is to fund a lot of that where it was internal but now we started talking about a bit more externally but we're a subscription service and you know the likes of spotify and netflix they're around 150 million subscribers what does that actually look like for climate impact there's an insane amount of climate impact where on a purely tree basis, tree level, it'd be around 150, 200 billion trees every single year is planted. It's around 10, 12% of all greenhouse gas emissions. Now, in the eyes of the United Nations, a 0.1% reduction in global greenhouse emissions would be a major, major win, especially through any single entity, let alone an opportunity for 10, 12, 13% of all emissions. That's our big reason for being here is to show... Yes, we should be reducing our carbon footprint, but let's just say we just put together four pounds fifty, five dollars a month into this thing and you have this just most insane opportunity for something the size of Netflix. And Netflix is amazing. I don't make me choose between Netflix or Officer Earth, but I think there's a real opportunity for something to reach that scale. And then beyond, you know, they do some research that said there are seven hundred million people who could quite comfortably accommodate something like netflix or offset earth
0: so uh, i guess to wrap up you know it's been great chatting to you it feels like it would be remiss of me not to mention the current coronavirus pandemic and the impact of you know an 85 percent reduction in people taking certain types of journey and all the shops being closed all over the world and the impact that must be having on the environment and it'd be great to sort of get your thoughts on that
2: yeah yeah oh it's a real mixed bag certainly short term it's a it's a blessing a short term for our climate issue we're going to be seeing some serious carbon reductions this year which we haven't done since around kind of the the 90s where there's a real kind of fuel crisis but we're looking at potentially maybe about three maybe five percent carbon reduction this year which would be a massive boon you know our actual target for the two degree warming by 2030 is actually 1.6 1.7 percent reduction year on year which seems basically unachievable coronavirus caused a lot of pain but for one thing it's going to help give us just a little bit of extra time now combined with we've got extra time but we're going to see a big pullback on investment in the green economy we're going to see purse strings really tighten through any economic fallout. And so the jury's still out on whether that actually will be balanced out entirely or even swing it in the other direction. So it's an absolute mixed bag, but I wonder what you guys are thinking. But I think the kind of most inspiring thing is, the world can turn on a sixpence if it needs to. So for coronavirus, we've needed to change everything. And for climate emergency, we need to change everything on a, a kind of on a on another level. But my God, I've seen everything change. And it just gives me real hope that we can totally do this if we see the requirement. And so that's a big marketing problem for us to make the problem seem big. But I feel really inspired by it.
1: My perspective on this, so it's fantastic seeing, you know, satellite imagery of pollution clearing and, you know, all these photos of clear skies and animals roaming and seemingly lush vegetation returning. And like, it definitely has made in the short term an impact, right, in terms of the observable difference to climate and pollution. I think the flip side for me, which is actually probably one of the more depressing things, is some restrictions have been relaxed so in America, they basically completely relaxed the restrictions around certain types of waste during Corona, which is the most ridiculous thing to have done. But they basically removed any like punitive action against companies doing certain types of dumping of, of various types of waste, which is crazy. So that will obviously have a net off against some of this positivity. I mean, ultimately air travel is at 10% of what it was and road travel is at like 60 to 70% reduction of what it was so that is going to have a huge impact so so that's all again kind of back to the other side of positivity but then if you look at what's happened in the states with the stimulus that they've issued the federal reserve is now up to i think it's about 6 trillion dollars worth of stimulus that they've issued to support their economy and the un had solving climate change at like 1 trillion dollars right so It says a lot, doesn't it, about what matters to people when the Federal Reserve is willing to, honest experience, as Elliot put it, print all this money to, inverted commas, save the US economy, keep the stock market alive. And I I get it. Like, if loads of people lose their jobs and unemployment goes up, millions of people will die and it's awful, right? I'm not saying they shouldn't be doing what they're doing, but my argument would be, shouldn't we also be taking that same level of action to do something about the impending death of our species as a result of our destruction of our planet like that seems like a pretty important cause to me and perhaps one that is at least as important as what's going on now so my perspective on corona is is a mixed bag and i just hope that that willingness to solve the impending financial crisis that comes from corona will kind of roll over into the same level of ambition to kind of maintaining and solving the climate problem as well
0: To try and get this to a really genuinely positive ending, I think what I'll say is I see the lockdown situation as something that's happening long enough for people to form new habits and behaviours. And I think companies and organisations will genuinely be better at doing remote working. And I think there will genuinely be a long term reduction in the amount of travel that people do that maybe wasn't completely necessary because people genuinely appreciate they can do things remotely now. And I also think there'll be a lot of people that will actually want aspects of the slightly simpler life that they've been leading. And so I think there is some positivity within all of this that can last beyond when the lockdown lasts. I also think the relaxation of it is going to be pretty gradual as well.
2: I really see that too. And I'm seeing long-term benefit here.
0: Elliot, thanks so much for talking to us. Good luck with everything that you're doing at Offset Earth. And we look forward to talking to you again in the future.
1: Great stuff. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Rob. It's been great. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us, Elliot. So, Jim, uh, what a great episode. It was really fun to be back in the studio. And I really, really enjoyed hearing all about what Elliot and the team are up to at Offset Earth.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed being back chatting with you. The fact that we can sort of watch each other on a video call whilst producing an episode of Alexa Stop makes me feel warm inside.
1: Me too, Jim. Me too. It's a wonderful feeling to be back, albeit virtually. We've teed off nicely with the first of our sort of positive news Corona episodes. And next month, we're interviewing Natalie Fee, who I understand is a fellow Bristolian. Tell us a little bit about Natalie.
0: So Natalie runs a charity called City to Sea. She's an environmental campaigner um, who started that sort of journey looking at how uh, plastics in the ocean uh, are affecting the world and what we can do about it. But she's also written a couple of books and uh, is known for being an, an a sustainability agony aunt.
1: Wow. OK, well, I look forward to asking her some agony aunt style questions in that case. Uh, and I understand that she also produced a pop song. So we might have to, uh, might have, to have some fun with that one, too. Uh, as always thank you for listening this has been alexa stop presented by me and uh, my dear friend jim uh, we're brought to you in association with disruption magazine which is on disruptionhub.com we're really excited to be able to announce that we'll very soon be on the london podcast radio station so if you like podcasts check that out uh, until next time stay safe you can get in touch with us on twitter at alexa underscore stop any final words jim we'll see you next time see you next time